Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all today. Um, if you have your Bibles, well, mostly it looks like most of you have, if you have a phone, <laughs> it looks more like it, you could turn to Luke 24. That's what we're going to be talking through today, Luke 24, specifically verses 13 through 35. Um, one second. The nice thing is that uh, I have my wife watching, so she's letting me know that it's a little loud. <laughs> um, but as you turn to Luke 24, um, as we get going, whenever it comes to Christmas or to either um, mine or Rachel's birthdays, like there's something that we always kind of expect one of us is going to get, and that is that we love board games, so one of us is almost always going to get a board game. Whether it's me or Rachel, somebody is going to get a board game, whether on our birthdays or on Christmas. In fact, if you, it's one of the, like, the easy gifts for people to, to choose. Um, if they're trying to think of like what's a gift that they want to get us, well, usually if you get us a board game, we'll be happy. Of course, as our um, selection grows, it might become more difficult to buy as a board game because now you have to like figure out which ones we have. Uh, but so when we get a new game, one of the first things you have to do is you have to read through the rules, right? You have to read through the rules so that you can understand, you know, what, how do you actually play this game? Like, and usually what happens is I, I have this strange love of reading rule books. So I end up being the one who pulls out the rules and reads through it. But that means I'm also the one that then has to tell Rachel, well, this is how you play the game and, and tell her the instructions. But, and this might shock you, I'm not perfect, which means that sometimes I make mistakes. And what that means when it comes to explaining this uh, new board game to Rachel uh, that we just got is that sometimes I'm explaining all the rules that I thought I read, but I end up missing one or two. And what happens very often, unfortunately, probably more often than not, as she would say, um, is that we'll be playing a game the for, for the first time, and we'll have been playing it for a little bit, like we've been going many rounds, we've each done several turns, and then... Uh, we'll be like, wait, what? A, how do we do this thing? And I'll look back at the rule book and be like, oh yeah, I forgot about this. And the thing I forgot about totally changes the way the game is played. Like, we, we were doing okay, like we were kind of playing the game, but we couldn't truly play the game the way it was intended until we had read and understood all the rules. And oftentimes in our Christian life, I think it's a little bit similar. Like we, we start off getting saved, we start off following Christ, and we know some things, but as we grow, as we come to follow him more, as we come to study the Bible more, as we come to learn about him more, it's like we discover new rules in the rule book that make the game so much better. Today we are finishing up our series on Easter with a story that actually happened on Easter Sunday. Like we started... Several weeks ago, if you guys remember, we talked about um, how kind of the first event that kind of led Jesus to the cross, and that was Judas deciding that he no longer was going to get a benefit from following Jesus. So he goes and he um, schemes with the chief priests and the scribes to betray him. And then we talked about how Jesus set up the Passover dinner 
probably secretly so that Judas couldn't betray him beforehand because the Passover dinner was so important because it was his announcement of the new covenant that was coming. And then last weekend with Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we, we focused on Christ's death and resurrection. And we talked about how now if anybody believes in Christ, they will not perish but have eternal life. And today we're going to look at what is kind of the result of all of that. And as I'm sure you've noticed, I like to end my sermons. If you've heard me talk before, I like to end my sermons by saying, so what, right? The idea is that while it's great for me to stand up here and tell you, oh, this is what the Bible says and maybe dive deep into like different things or what this is what the Hebrew is, like that's all great. But what it doesn't matter if we don't take the time to then take what we've learned and apply it to our lives today. So Luke's final chapter here in his book is kind of like a so what to his gospel. Because to understand why I'm saying a quick overview of Luke is that he organizes his gospel in a unique way that's different from the other ones. He basically has three main sections, and it all comes out of his stated purpose that he says at the very beginning of the book. At the very beginning of the book, he's telling the guy who basically hired him to write the book that he is setting out to write an orderly account of the things that have been accomplished among us. That's how he words it. And so the first section of Luke is all about introducing Jesus. It introduces, you know, and setting up Jesus as the Messiah. It talks about his birth. It talks about his baptism. It talks about his miracles. It ends that section with the transfiguration. That's when Jesus gets this divine body and he's talking to Moses and he's talking to Elijah up on a mountain, right? The first section of the book, you should finish by being like, yes, Jesus obviously is the Messiah that was prophesied to come. And then in Luke 9, verse 51, he kind of changes things. Luke 9, 51 says this, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so what's really unique about Luke is this middle section is actually like this long journey of Jesus heading to Jerusalem. And along the way, this is the section where Luke inserts all of Jesus' famous teachings and parables. Like, the idea is that you have Jesus walking along the road with his followers and just teaching them as they walk. That's the picture Luke is painting. And of course, that leads to the final section of Luke, which Jesus arriving at Jerusalem, and we've been talking about what happened there the last several weeks. So with that picture in mind, right, that is the overall flow of Luke. And it's important to keep that in mind for our passage, right? It's important to remember that Luke starts off by saying, hey, this is Jesus. He's the Messiah, that he took, takes a journey with his disciples to Jerusalem. They get to Jerusalem, and in the disciples' minds, this is why it's important to remember it, they think, ah, oh, Jesus has proven himself. He's taught us. Now he's going to set himself up as the ruler of all the nations, and instead Jesus dies. So for the disciples, they're probably wondering at this point, what was, what was the so what? Why did we go through all of this following Jesus? And that brings us to our passage. Because in verse 13 of Luke 24, it says this, that very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. So our passage starts out with two of the followers of Jesus, and they're back on a journey, but they're on a journey away from Jerusalem. They're on a journey that kind of looks like they're heading home. 
right? They went on this journey with Jesus to Jerusalem, and then they thought that that Jesus actually wasn't it. And now they're like reversing in Luke's story, right? They're going backwards. But what's amazing is it's while they're on a journey that Jesus is going to show up and teach them just like Jesus was doing in the whole middle section of Luke. So now we're going to read a big chunk. We're going to read about this interaction between them and Jesus in verses 14 through 24. So read along with me. It says, And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So these two are walking back. Now, we don't know exactly who these two are. We're obviously given the name of one of them. Um, they could be friends. Some people speculate maybe they're husband and wife because it seems like they're going back to a house that they both live in. Um, either way, they're heading back, and to them, this total stranger, because they're kept from seeing who it really is, shows up and asks them what's going on. And they're like flabbergasted, right? Because the biggest event that has probably happened there in a long time has just happened, and this guy is clueless about it. Like, could you imagine, like, two years ago, right, the pandemic that just started, first lockdowns in effect, maybe you're out in a queue waiting to get into Sainsbury because, you know, we all had to queue, and they only let so many in. Everybody's wearing masks. Everybody's social distanced. And you're all, and you're waiting there, and this guy just comes up to you, no mask, doesn't social distance, just comes right up to you and is like, what's going on? Why are you all in a queue? Why is everybody wearing a mask? Right? You'd be like, what? How do you not know what's going on? How do you not know that the world has changed? You'd probably respond like Cleopas and be like, are you the only person in England who has not heard about COVID? Like, to them, they are so, they're just like, what is going on? But we know that this is Jesus and that this is a little bit of a cheeky bit for Jesus because of course he knew what had happened in Jerusalem. He still had the wounds to prove it. But I think just like Jesus, he always likes to come and ask questions because he wants to get to the heart. He wants to hear what people really feel and what and he wants them to say what they're thinking. And I appreciate that Cleopas does give an honest answer. He does respond showing exactly how those two are feeling because they're just gutted, right? It says that they, were, they stopped, they stood still and were sad. And they tell the stranger about Jesus. But notice some of the things of how they describe Jesus. First, they say that Jesus was a prophet. 
And then they say that they were hoping he'd be the one to come and redeem Israel. In other words, they were hoping he was the one that was going to show up and kick out Rome. And they admit that there was this strange thing with some women who went to the tomb and saw angels. But notice that after some men of the group went and checked out what the women had said, they did find that the tomb was empty, but they didn't see any angels. They didn't see any Jesus. So they they just these two were like, well, I guess that's it. Let's head home. I hope you notice some of the things that Cleopas said, because he had some things that he got right, but there was a lot that weren't. Was, it was like he got it almost there, but there was just like a little bit off, right? Like because the first the big thing is is that he said that Jesus was a prophet, right? Luke sets up this whole first part of the gospel to make sure that you understand that Luke, that Jesus isn't just a prophet, he's the Messiah. But they thought that the Messiah was going to come and conquer everything. They thought the Messiah was going to come and set up a kingdom where Israel like rules all over the over all the other nations. But Jesus came and he died. Right what had happened was that they had read their rule book and they kind of knew how to play the game, but they had misunderstood what they had read. They weren't actually playing the game correctly. You see, they had thought that they understood the Old Testament. They thought that they understood that the, the Messiah, that from what they read, what they understood, their cultural value was that the Messiah was going to come and he was going to conquer and rule. And the thing is, we often do the same thing thing is often we read the Bible and we have our cultural values and we think our cultural values are biblical so when we read the Bible we we kind of read them into that we kind of expect the Bible to support these cultural like values that we hold and yet the Bible really doesn't when you actually dig down into it like sometimes like there's very obvious ones and this usually leads to people picking and choosing verses like you could say like uh, you have people who say you shouldn't drink alcohol, and they quote some verses about why you shouldn't drink alcohol. But then, of course, that means they have to ignore all the verses where it's pretty explicit that people could drink alcohol, right? That ends up picking and choosing. But then there's some deeper cultural values that we read into the Bible that isn't quite there. Like, for instance, in a typical Western country, which we are, we're a very individualized society. What that means is that we value the individual over the group. Now, I will admit the UK is not as individualized as America. That's like the extreme side. But even here, it's still true. We value the individual. And what that, ha what that means is that we talk about stuff like personal conversion, personal quiet time with the Lord. We say, this is what the Holy Spirit said to me. And don't get me wrong. I do think that God does interact with us on an individual basis. But the Bible was not written in an individualized culture. The Bible was written about how the group works. The Bible is very much more about the collectivist society, about how we all interact with each other. Uh, an example of this, of how we can take our individual culture and sometimes misunderstand the Bible, is one of my favorite verses, and it's still one of my favorite verses, but I totally misunderstood this, was Ephesians 2.10, which says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has prepared before time for us to do. 
And I would read that with my individual eyes, and I would say, ah, oh, see, it says here that I was created, I am God's workmanship. I was created in Christ Jesus, and there is good works that God prepared for me to do. But that's not what it says. It says for us to do. Paul's not writing it. When he wrote that, he wasn't writing it for like an individual person. He was writing it to a church. He's saying that the, that God has prepared good works beforehand for the church, for the body of Christ to do together. Now, of course, that means that we all have our parts to play in it. We will be doing stuff, but it's the focus is not on an individual. The focus is on the church as a collective. Right, we often can look at these poor these two poor souls that are traveling away from Jerusalem and think, man, how did they miss it? How did they think that Jesus was just a prophet? How did they think that it's just, you know, that, how did they misread it to think that the Messiah was going to just come and conquer everything? And then we turn to someone and we tell them, well, don't worry, God works all things out for the good who loves them. And then we forget that the guy who wrote that was beheaded. Like we have to be careful that we're not reading our culture into the Bible and mistaking what the Bible's saying to support what we value. And so that should bring up the question was, well, how do we avoid that? How do we fix that? How do we stop that from happening? And well, it comes through a proper understanding of scripture because look at what Jesus does to correct their misunderstanding. In verses 25 to 27, it says, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ what should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus takes them back right to the very beginning, and he shows them exactly what the Messiah was supposed to do. Jesus reveals to them what scripture really said. And Luke doesn't give us everything that what Jesus referenced because the point is he wants us to see that the Old Testament, everything that you read in the first two-thirds of your Bible, is pointing to Jesus. But if we were to attempt to guess what might be some of the things he might say, uh, I think we can look through the Old Testament ourselves and see it. We can see that in Genesis 3 during the fall of mankind when God is telling each of the people and the snake what their consequences are. When he's talking to the snake, he says that there is going to be someone that's going to come from the woman who's going to crush him. But he does say that the one before he gets crushed, the snake is going to get an attack in, right? Somebody's going to come that's going to crush evil, but evil's still going to get an attack in before they get crushed. You jump ahead to Genesis 12, and you see God's famous promise to Abraham about how he's going to bless the whole world through him. A few weeks ago, we talked about Passover and how, like in Egypt, we saw that an innocent lamb had to be slain so that its blood could be put on the door frames to protect the firstborn of Israel from being killed and how that was just a picture of Christ. I mean, you get stories like in Numbers where you have Balaam, who's a prophet for hire, and he prophesies that there's going to be a future ruler coming out of the people of Israel. If you read throughout the Psalms, you get this picture that the Messiah is going to be somebody who really understands the law and lives a perfect life. But you also see that there's going to be trouble there. Because, I mean, Jesus himself quotes Psalm 22 from the cross when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
We talked again a few weeks ago about Jeremiah and his promise of a new covenant, and we talked about how a new covenant is established by something being sacrificed. And Isaiah, Isaiah has a lot of verses about the suffering servant. He has verses like how he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was laid on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And then Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, ends with this promise that God is going to come himself and he's going to send Elijah ahead of him, who Jesus points out was John the Baptist. There is so much we could talk about. And in fact, if you just want to like read something that's going to help you see connections between Jesus's life in the Old Testament, just read through Matthew. Matthew loves doing that. He loves saying like, Jesus did this. And that is because this is something that was said in an Old Testament book. But what Luke, what Luke is doing is that he's bringing his gospel full circle. Because remember, Luke set out to write an orderly account of all the things that were accomplished among them. And here at the end of Luke, we have Jesus explaining how he has accomplished all the things that were said about the Messiah. Now you might be thinking, well, that's really good, Shelby, that, that you know, Jesus did that for them, but what about us? You know, like, we don't have Jesus just showing up, walking along the road with us, and then telling us, hey, this is what the Bible actually says. I mean, which is a fair point. Like, wouldn't that be amazing if, like, Jesus just suddenly showed up, he came in the doors, and was like, hey, hey, guys, let me tell you really what the Bible says. Now, if he did that, I would really hope he wouldn't start by saying, how foolish are you, like he did to Cleopas, because that would look really bad on me and anybody else who's ever stood up here and taught the Bible. But here's the thing. We may not have Jesus, but we do have someone who has given to us to help us understand the scriptures. You see, in our passage, when they arrive at their destination, they invite this stranger in to eat with them. And after they break bread, they finally are able to see that it's Jesus. And when they see that it's Jesus, he disappears. And after he disappears, they say this to each other. Look at verse 32. They say, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? You see, the thing is about Luke is that it's really only part one of a two-part collection, right? Luke also would go on to write Acts. And it's very much the story just flows right into Acts. And what is one of the key events of Acts that sets up that whole story? Well, that's Pentecost, right? The coming of the Holy Spirit. Right? When Jesus shows up, we see that when he starts his ministry, all the Gospels talk about how he's baptized by John the Baptist and how the Holy Spirit descends on him. And then he goes out and he does amazing things. He proclaims the Gospel. But now his ministry is ending, and what he's doing is about to, he's preparing his disciples for the Holy Spirit that's going to come and now indwell on them. And what these two disciples got was just a little taste of what it's going to be like once they really receive the Holy Spirit. You see, when we study the Bible, when we get a correct view and understanding of the scriptures, we do that partly through how we study, but a big part is also through the fact that we have God's Holy Spirit in us. When we spend time in God's word, there should be some kind of reaction, right? Because have you ever had a sermon that you've been listening to and it just, it just hit you, like it just, you felt something from it? Or maybe 
somebody was explaining something from the Bible to you and it just made the Bible seem like it just came alive to you. Or maybe you were just reading yourself. You were just reading through the scriptures and it just, something jumped out to you. Something just touched you in a different way. That is the, that is God's spirit. That is the Holy Spirit moving in us. But the thing I want to point out is that what we see here in Luke is that it wasn't done in an isolated thing. It was done in a fellowship. It was done in a group setting. We each have the Holy Spirit, which means we're all connected to each other through that same Spirit. That means that the Spirit reveal what the Spirit reveals is never usually just for a single person, but for a group. Sure, there's going to be things where you will take away something and it'll apply to your specific situation. But I bet you that thing that you took away, if you shared it with somebody else, they would find out, oh, that actually applies to me as well. What I'm trying to say is this. There will be times when someone will stand up here in front of the church and teach scripture and it will impact you because the spirit in you is reacting to the words being said to you. But this is not the only time that the Spirit moves. In fact, I think that the Spirit moves the most when we're, as a people, we're together. As a people, we're fellowshipping with each other. You can read the Bible by yourself, and you can listen to sermons by yourself, and you may get some of the rules of the game, but I can guarantee you that you're going to miss some. Because notice what the two disciples do once they realize what happens. Once they realized who Jesus, it was Jesus. Once they say, man, it felt like our hearts were on fire. Verse 33 says they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. They immediately headed back because they needed to tell the rest of the disciples exactly what had happened and what had been shared with them. So let's be like them. Let's be quick to share with each other what the Spirit has revealed to each one of us. So what? The disciples here on this road felt lost. Because of their cultural values and misunderstandings, they thought they had followed the wrong person. And we too can let our worldview creep in when we read the Bible. And the best way to fix it would, of course, be to have Jesus just show up and fix our misunderstandings. But the thing is, is that we actually, in a way, we do have Jesus because we have the Spirit, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, they're all one being. But sometimes it can be hard to hear the Spirit. I know for myself, I have a hard time quieting myself to listen. Sometimes we can think the Spirit's talking to us, but we're maybe not sure. Is that really God talking to me? Is that really the Holy Spirit, or is that just some other thought? Well, a good way to find out, the good way to hear the Spirit if you're having a hard time, or a good way to find out if what you're hearing is correct, is to share it with other people who also have the Holy Spirit. Because if the Holy Spirit is confirming something for you, then the same Spirit in me should also confirm that for you. The point is, is that when we journey together, we can make sure that we're keeping each other on the right path. So just two questions. Have you missed some of the rules of the game? And are you trying to live the Christian life alone? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much that you sent your spirit. Thank you so much that just like these two disciples that felt just lost and 
insecure and not knowing what was happening that you were faithful to come alongside them and show them the truth. And in the same way, God, I know oftentimes we are going to feel lost. We're going to feel insecure. We're going to be wondering what is going on, God. And let us take comfort in those moments that you are walking beside us, that your spirit is with us. God, I pray that we don't be a people who just try to be live our own little individualized journeys, but that we will be a church who comes together to follow after you. God, thank you so much for sending your son. Thank you so much for him dying and raising from the dead. And thank you so much that the spirit came after. That you didn't just send your son and just save people and then just went away, but that you are still active. You are still here and you are still with us. God, thank you so much just for all that you've done. In your name, amen.